0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, hello, wherever and whenever you are, and welcome to episode 15 of Stories of Your and Yours. I am Sean Ennis, and I am your host. Thank you for joining me this week, and don't be a stranger. Now, this week we'll be starting the show like we always do, and that's with a new iTunes review. Keep It Coming by iTunes Review 42. Sean's editing and voicing really bring the stories to life. One of the best readings of The Raven I've ever heard. I love the new addition of getting a little background and context from each author's life. I'm looking forward to more and more from your and yours. Well, thanks to iTunes Review 42 for taking the time to review the show, and thanks to The Thunder for giving us a little bit of ambiance in the background, if you can hear that, and for the plug of episode number 10, which featured three stories from Edgar Allan Poe, including, of course, The Raven. Speaking of the back catalog, remember you can find all 14 of our previous episodes wherever you found this one. And if you haven't reviewed the show yet, and you want to have your review read on the air, head over to iTunes and leave a review, and it'll be produced right here on the show. Every review helps other people find the show, and I genuinely appreciate you taking the time to do so. And of course, remember to follow the show on social media, whether that's on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, at SYY Podcast. You can contact me through any of those methods with requests for short stories. We've done a few of those so far, or with your own short story that you'd like to have read on the show. If you've written a story, I would love to see it. we have actually got some original work coming in a couple of weeks, and then we've got some more requests coming after that. I'd like to keep that trend going. This show is for you, so take control of it. Now, on to this week's show. This week, we'll be exploring the works of an author who went by the name of Saki. Saki was the pen name of Hector Hugo Monroe. He lived from 1870 to 1916 and was born in Burma, which was a British colony at the time and is now Myanmar. He spent only two years in Burma, however, and was sent to England with his siblings to live with his grandmother and his two aunts. Theirs was a very strict and puritanical household, and this had a great effect on Monroe's writings, as he often lampooned adults and aunts specifically, as you'll hear in The Lumber Room. But Saki didn't just target the tyranny of household adult authority figures, he took on Edwardian society at large, going after hypocrisy and pretension, as you'll hear in Tobermory. So he tended to show his disdain for certain types of people through his writings, and he did not go easy on them. For a pretty vivid example of that, you can check out a story called Sredni Vashtar, which we won't feature today, but is definitely worth a read. That made Binsaki at his darkest. Monroe made an attempt at a career with the Burmese police like his father had, but he was unable to do so. He moved to journalism and worked as a journalist as a start to his writing career in 1896, and he worked as a foreign correspondent for the Morning Post from 1902 to 1908. He published his first short story, Dogged, in 1899, and though he published some short stories while working as a journalist and a foreign correspondent, including several political satire pieces, Monroe didn't attempt a full-time living as a writer until his return to England in 1908. He published three short story collections and two novels before the start of World War I. This is significant because when the war started, he wanted to fight. Being 43 years old at the time, however, he was too old to enlist, and so he joined the cavalry in the form of the Second King Edward's Horse. Monroe was then killed in action in November 1916 by a German sniper. There's not a ton of super-reliable history about Monroe's childhood, as his papers were burned by his sister after his death, and she then wrote her own version of their childhood history. I don't know what's contained in this history, but I think you can get a pretty good idea of what he thought about his upbringing by reading his stories. So with that brief background, let's move on to today's stories. Our first story is called Tobermory. Tobermory was published in 1911 as part of the collection called the Chronicles of Clovis. This was a collection in which Clovis was a recurring character who would show up and take a kind of delight in the downfall of those who were deserving of comeuppance. There's one phrase in Tobermory that I just wanted to point out. One of the characters says, it's not my Axminster. Axminster was a kind of carpet. Uh, Somewhat of a throwaway line, but still worth mentioning. The second story today is called The Lumber Room. This was published in 1914 and was included in Saki's final published collection of stories before his death. And a lumber room, by the way, was a room used by wealthy people at the time to store unused furniture. You know, when you accumulate enough furniture that you can't possibly use it all at the same time, right? So, that is the author, those are the stories, and this is this week's presentation. Tobermory by Saki It was a chill, rain-washed afternoon of a late August day, that indefinite season when partridges are still in security or cold storage, and there is nothing to hunt, unless one is bounded on the north by the Bristol Channel, in which case one may lawfully gallop after fat red stags. Lady Blemley's house party was not bounded on the north by the Bristol Channel, Hence, there was a full gathering of her guests round the tea-table on this particular afternoon. And in spite of the blankness of the season and the triteness of the occasion, there was no trace in the company of that fatigued restlessness which means a dread of the pianola and a subdued hankering for the auction bridge. The undisguised open-mouthed attention of the entire party was fixed on the homely negative personality of Mr. Cornelius Appen. Of all her guests, he was the one who had come to Lady Blemley with the vaguest reputation— Someone had said he was clever, and he had gotten his invitation in the moderate expectation, on the part of his hostess, that some portion at least of his cleverness would be contributed to the general entertainment. Until tea time that day, she had been unable to discover in what direction, if any, his cleverness lay. He was neither a wit nor a croquet champion, a hypnotic force nor a begetter of amateur theatricals, Neither did his exterior suggest the sort of man in whom women are willing to pardon a generous measure of mental deficiency. He had subsided into mere Mr. Appen, and the Cornelius seemed a piece of transparent baptismal bluff. And now he was claiming to have launched on the world a discovery beside which the invention of gunpowder, of the printing press, and of steam locomotion were inconsiderable trifles. Science had made bewildering strides in many directions during recent decades but this thing seemed to belong to the domain of miracle, rather than to scientific achievement. "'And do you really ask us to believe,' Sir Wilfrid was saying, "'that you have discovered a means for instructing animals in the art of human speech, that dear old Tobermury has proved your first successful pupil?' "'It is a problem at which I have worked for the last seventeen years,' said Mr. Appen. "'But only during the last eight or nine months have I been rewarded with the glimmerings of success.' Of course, I have experimented with thousands of animals, but latterly only with cats, those wonderful creatures which have assimilated themselves so marvelously with our civilization while retaining all their highly developed feral instincts. Here and there among cats one comes across an outstanding superior intellect, just as one does among the ruck of human beings. And when I made the acquaintance of Tobermory a week ago, I saw at once that I was in contact with a beyond cat of extraordinary intelligence, I have gone far along the road to success in recent experiments. With Tobermory, as you call him, I have reached the goal." Mr. Appen concluded his remarkable statement in a voice which he strove to divest a triumphant inflection. No one said rats, though Clovis's lips moved in a monosyllabic contortion which probably invoked those rodents of disbelief. "'And do you mean to say,' asked Miss Resker, after a slight pause, "'that you have taught Tobermory to say and understand easy sentences of one syllable?' "'My dear Miss Fresker," said the Wonderworker patiently, "'one teaches children and savages and backward adults in that piecemeal fashion. "'When one has once solved the problem of making a beginning with an animal of highly developed intelligence, "'one has no need for those halting methods. "'Tobermory can speak our language with perfect correctness.' This time Clovis very distinctly said, "Beyond Rats!' Sir Wilfrid was more polite, but equally skeptical. "'Hadn't we better have the cat in and judge for ourselves?' suggested Lady Blemley. Sir Wilfrid went in search of the animal, and the company settled themselves down to the languid expectation of witnessing some more or less adroit drawing-room ventriloquism. In a minute Sir Wilfrid was back in the room, his face white beneath its tan, and his eyes dilated with excitement." "'By gad, it's true.' His agitation was unmistakably genuine, and his hearers started forward, in a thrill of awakened interest. Collapsing into an armchair, he continued breathlessly, "'I found him dozing in the smoking room, and called out to him to come for his tea. He blinked at me in his usual way, and I said, "'Come on, Toby, don't keep us waiting,' and, by gad, he drawled out in a most horribly natural voice that he'd come when he dashed well-pleased.' I nearly jumped out of my skin! Appen had preached to absolutely incredulous hearers. Sir Wilfrid's statement carried instant conviction. A babble-like chorus of startled exclamation arose, amid which the scientist sat mutely, enjoying the first fruit of his stupendous discovery. In the midst of the clamor, Tobermory entered the room and made his way with velvet tread and studied unconcern across to the group seated around the tea-table. A sudden hush of awkwardness and constraint fell upon the company. Somehow there seemed an element of embarrassment in addressing on equal terms a domestic cat of acknowledged dental ability. "'Will you have some milk to asked Lady Blemley in a rather strained voice. "'I don't mind if I do,' was the response, couched in a tone of even indifference. A shiver of suppressed excitement went through the listeners, and Lady Blemley might be excused for pouring out the saucerful of milk rather unsteadily. "'I'm afraid we've spilt a good deal of it,' she said apologetically. "'After all, it's not my Axminster,' was Tobermory's rejoinder. Another silence fell on the group, and then Miss Resker, in her best district visitor manner, asked if the human language had been difficult to learn. Tobermory looked squarely at her for a moment and then fixed his gaze serenely on the middle distance. It was obvious that boring questions lay outside his scheme of life.' "'What do you think of human intelligence?' asked Mavis Pellington lamely. "'Of whose intelligence in particular?' said Tobermory coldly. "'Oh, well, uh, mine, for instance,' (laughs) said Mavis, with a feeble laugh. "'You put me in an embarrassing position,' said Tobermory, whose tone and attitude certainly did not suggest a shred of embarrassment. When your inclusion in this house party was suggested, Sir Wilfrid protested that you were the most brainless woman of his acquaintance, and that there was a wide distinction between hospitality and the care of the feeble-minded. Lady Blemley replied that your lack of brain power was the precise quality which had earned you your invitation, as you were the only person she could think of who might be idiotic enough to buy their old car, Uh, you know, the one they call the Envy of Sisyphus, because it goes nicely uphill, if you push it. Lady Blumney's protestations would have had greater effect if she had not casually suggested to Mavis only that morning that the car in question would be just the thing for her down at her Devonshire home. Major Barfield plunged in heavily to effect a diversion. How about your carrotings on with the tortoiseshell puss up at the stables, eh? The moment he had said it, everyone realized the blunder. One does not usually discuss these matters in public. "'said Tobermory frigidly. "'From a slight observation of your ways since you've been in this house, "'I should imagine you'd find it inconvenient "'if I were to shift the conversation to your own little affairs.' "'The panic which ensued was not confined to the Major. "'Would you like to go and see if the cook has got your dinner ready?' "'suggested Lady Blumley hurriedly, "'affecting to ignore the fact that it wanted at least two hours to Tobermory's dinner-time. "'Thanks,' said Tobermory, "'Not quite so soon after my tea. "'I don't want to die of indigestion.' "'Cats have nine lives, you know,' said Sir Wilfrid heartily. "'Possibly,' answered Tobermory. "'But only one liver.' "'Adelaide,' said Mrs. Cornette, "'do you mean to encourage the cat to go out and gossip about us in the servants' hall?' The panic had indeed become general. A narrow ornamental balustrade ran in front of most of the bedroom windows at the towers, and it was recalled with dismay that this had framed a favorite promenade for Tobermore at all hours, whence he could watch the pigeons, and heaven knew what else besides. If he intended to become reminiscent in his present outspoken strain, the effect would be something more than disconcerting. Mrs. Cornette, who spent much time at the toilet-table, and whose complexion was reputed to be of a nomadic through punctual disposition— looked ill at ease as the major. Miss Scrawan, who wrote fiercely sensuous poetry and led a blameless life, merely displayed irritation. If you are methodical and virtuous in private, you don't necessarily want everyone to know it. Bertie Van Ton, who was so depraved at seventeen that he had long ago given up trying to be any worse, turned a dull shade of gardenia white, but he did not commit the error of dashing out of the room like Odo Finsbury a young gentleman who was understood to be reading for the church and who was possibly disturbed at the thought of scandals he might hear concerning other people. Clovis had the presence of mind to maintain a composed exterior. Privately, he was calculating how long it would take to procure a box of fancy mice through the agency of the Exchange and Mart as a species of hush-money. Even in a delicate situation like the present, Agnes Resker could not endure to remain too long in the background. "'Why did I ever come down here?' "'She asked dramatically. "'Tobermory immediately accepted the opening. "'Judging by what you said to Mrs. Cornette "'on the croquet lawn yesterday, "'you are out for food. "'You described the Blemleys as "'the dullest people to stay with that you knew, "'but said that they were clever enough "'to employ a first-rate cook. "'Otherwise they'd find it difficult "'to get anyone to come down a second time.' "'There's not a word of truth in it. "'I appeal to Mrs. Cornet! "'exclaimed the discomfited Agnes. "'Mrs. Cornet repeated your remark afterwards to Bertie von Tann, continued Tobermory, "'and said, "'That woman is a regular hunger-marcher. she go anywhere for four square meals a day.' "'And Bertie von Tann said—' At this point the chronicle mercifully ceased. Tobermory had caught a glimpse of the big yellow tom from the rectory working his way through the shrubbery towards the stable wing. In a flash he had vanished through the open French window.' With the disappearance of his two brilliant pupil, Cornelius Appen found himself beset by a hurricane of bitter upbraiding, anxious stopped? inquiry, and frightened entreaty. The responsibility for the situation lay with him, and he must prevent matters from becoming worse. Could Tobamori impart his dangerous gift to other cats? was the first question he had to answer. It was possible, he replied, that he might have initiated his intimate friend, the stable puss into his new accomplishment, but it was unlikely that his teaching could have taken a wider range yet. "'Then,' said Mrs. Cornet, "'Tobermarie may be a valuable cat and a great pet, "'but I'm sure you'll agree, Adelaide, "'that he and the stable-cat must be done away with without delay.' "'You don't suppose I've enjoyed the last quarter of an hour, do you?' "'said Lady Blumley bitterly. "'My husband and I are very fond of Tobermarie. "'At least we were before this horrible accomplishment was infused into him. "'But now, of course, the only thing is to have him destroyed as soon as possible.' "'We can uh, put some strychnine in the scraps he always gets at dinner-time,' said Sir Wilfrid, "'and I will go and drown the stable-cat myself. "'The coachman will be very sore at losing his pet, "'but I'll say a very catching form of mange has broken out in both cats, "'and we're afraid of spreading it to the kennels. "'But my great discovery,' expostulated Mr. Appen, "'after all my years of research and experiment, "'you can go and experiment on the shorthorns at the farm.' who are under proper control, said Mrs. Cornet, or the elephants in the zoological gardens. They are said to be highly intelligent, and they have this recommendation that they don't come creeping about our bedrooms and under chairs and so forth. An archangel ecstatically proclaiming the millennium, and then finding that it clashed unpardonably with Henley, and would have to be indefinitely postponed, could hardly have felt more crestfallen than Cornelius Appen at the reception of his wonderful achievement, Public opinion, however, was against him. In fact, had the general voice been consulted on the subject, it is probable that a strong minority vote would have been in favor of including him in the strychnine diet. Defective train arrangements and a nervous desire to see matters brought to a finish prevented an immediate dispersal of the party, but dinner that evening was not a social success. Sir Wilfrid had had a rather trying time with the stable cat, and subsequently with the coachman. Agnes Resker ostentatiously limited her repast to a morsel of dry toast, which she bit as though it were a personal enemy, while Mavis Pellington maintained a vindictive silence throughout the meal. Lady Blumley kept up a flow of what she hoped was conversation, but her attention was fixed on the doorway. A plateful of carefully dosed fish scraps was in readiness on the sideboard, but sweets and savory and dessert went their way, and no tobermory appeared either in the dining room or the kitchen. The sepulchral dinner was cheerful compared with the subsequent vigil in the smoking-room. Eating and drinking had at least supplied a distraction and cloak for the prevailing embarrassment. Bridge was out of the question in the general tension of nerves and tempers, and after Odo Finsbury had given a lugubrious rendering of Melisandre in the wood to a frigid audience, music was tacitly avoided. At eleven, the servants went to bed, announcing that the small window in the pantry had been left open as usual for Tobermory's private use. The guests read steadily throughout the current batch of magazines and fell back gradually on the badminton library and bound volumes of Punch. Lady Blunley made periodic visits to the pantry, returning each time with an expression of listless depression which forestalled questioning. At two o'clock Clovis broke the dominating silence. He won't turn up tonight. He's probably in the local newspaper office at the present moment, dictating the first installment of Reminiscences. Uh, Lady What's-Her-Name's book won't be in it. It will be the event of the day. Having made this contribution to the general cheerfulness, Clovis went to bed. At long intervals, the various members of the house party followed his example. The servants, talking around the early tea, made a uniform announcement and replied to a uniform question. Tobermory had not returned. Breakfast was, if anything, a more unpleasant function than dinner had been, but before its conclusion the situation was relieved. Tobermory's corpse was brought in from the shrubbery, where a gardener had just discovered it, from the bites on his throat and the yellow fur which coated his claws, it was evident that he had fallen in unequal combat with the Big Tom from the rectory. By midday, most of the guests had quitted the towers, and after lunch Lady Blemley had sufficiently recovered her spirits to write an extremely nasty letter to the rectory about the loss of her valuable pet. Tobermory had been Appen's one successful pupil, and he was destined to have no successor. A few weeks later, an elephant in the Dresden Zoological Garden which had shown no previous signs of irritability, broke loose and killed an Englishman who had apparently been teasing it. The victim's name was variously reported in the papers as Oppen and Eppelin, but his front name was faithfully rendered Cornelius. If he was trying German irregular verbs on the poor beast, said Clovis, he deserved all he got. THE LUMBER ROOM BY SAKI The children were to be driven as a special treat to the sands at Yoggboro. Nicholas was not to be of the party. He was in disgrace. Only that morning he had refused to eat his wholesome bread and milk on the seemingly frivolous ground that there was a frog in it. Older and wiser and better people had told him that there could not possibly be a frog in his bread and milk and that he was not to talk nonsense. He continued nevertheless to talk what seemed to be the veriest nonsense and described with much detail the coloration and markings of the alleged frog. The dramatic part of the incident was that there really was a frog in Nicholas's basin of bread and milk. He had put it there himself, so he felt entitled to know something about it. The sin of taking a frog from the garden and putting it into a bowl of wholesome bread and milk was enlarged on at great length. But the fact that stood out clearest in the whole affair as it presented itself to the mind of Nicholas "'was that the older, wiser, and better people had been proved to be profoundly in error "'in matters about which they had expressed the utmost assurance. "'You said there couldn't possibly be a frog in my bread and milk. "'There was a frog in my bread and milk,' he repeated, "'with the insistence of a skilled tactician who does not intend to shift from favorable ground. "'So his boy-cousin and girl-cousin and his quite uninteresting younger brother "'were to be taken to Yagbro Sands that afternoon, and he was to stay at home.' His cousin's aunt, who insisted by an unwarranted stretch of imagination in styling herself his aunt also, had hastily invented the Yagbro expedition in order to impress on Nicholas the delights that he had justly forfeited by his disgraceful conduct at the breakfast table. It was her habit, whenever one of the children fell from grace, to improvise something of a festival nature from which the offender would be rigorously debarred. If all the children sinned collectively, they were suddenly informed of a circus in a neighboring town a circus of unrivaled merit and uncounted elephants, to which, but for their depravity, they would have been taken that very day. A few decent tears were looked for on the part of Nicholas when the moment for the departure of the expedition arrived. As a matter of fact, however, all the crying was done by his girl-cousin, who scraped her knee rather painfully against the step of the carriage as she was scrambling in. How she did howl, said Nicholas cheerfully, as the party drove off without any of the elation of high spirits that should have characterized it. "'She'll soon get over that,' said the soy-distant ant. "'It will be a glorious afternoon for racing about over those beautiful sands. How they will enjoy themselves!' "'Bobby won't enjoy himself much, and he won't race much either,' said Nicholas with a grim chuckle. "'His boots are hurting him. They're too tight.' "'Why didn't he tell me they were hurting?' asked the ant, with some asperity. "'He told you twice, but you weren't listening. You often don't listen when we tell you important things.' "'You are not to go into the gooseberry garden,' said the ant, changing the subject." "'Why not?' demanded Nicholas. "'Because you are in disgrace,' said the aunt loftily. Nicholas did not admit the flawlessness of the reasoning. He felt perfectly capable of being in disgrace and in a gooseberry garden at the same moment. His face took on an expression of considerable obstinacy. It was clear to his aunt that he was determined to get into the gooseberry garden. "'Only,' as she remarked to herself, "'because I have told him he is not to.' Now the gooseberry garden had two doors by which it might be entered— And once a small person like Nicholas could slip in there, he could effectually disappear from view amid the masking growth of the artichokes, raspberry canes, and fruit bushes. The aunt had many other things to do that afternoon, but she spent an hour or two in trivial gardening operations among flower beds and shrubberies, whence she could keep a watchful eye on the two doors that led to the forbidden paradise. She was a woman of few ideas with immense powers of concentration— Nicholas made one or two sortiers into the front garden, wriggling his way with obvious stealth of purpose toward one or the other of the doors, but never able for a moment to evade the aunt's watchful eye. As a matter of fact, he had no intention of trying to get into the gooseberry garden, but it was extremely convenient for him that his aunt should believe that he had. It was a belief that would keep her on self-imposed sentry duty for the greater part of the afternoon. Having thoroughly confirmed and fortified her suspicions, Nicholas slipped back into the house and rapidly put into execution— a plan of action that had long germinated in his brain. By standing on a chair in the library one could reach a shelf on which reposed a fat, important-looking key. The key was as important as it looked. It was the instrument which kept the mysteries of the lumber-room, secure from unauthorized intrusion, which opened away only for aunts and such-like privileged persons. Nicholas had not had much experience of the art of fitting keys into keyholes and turning locks, but for some days past he had practiced with the key of the schoolroom door. He did not believe in trusting too much to luck and accident. The key turned stiffly in the lock, but it turned. The door opened, and Nicholas was in an unknown land, compared with which the gooseberry garden was a stale delight, a mere material pleasure. Often and often Nicholas had pictured to himself what the lumber room might be like, that region that was so carefully sealed from youthful eyes, and concerning which no questions were ever answered. It came up to his expectations. In the first place, it was large and dimly lit, one high window opening onto the Forbidden Garden being its only source of illumination. In the second place, it was a storehouse of unimagined treasures. The aunt, by assertion, was one of those people who think that things spoil by use and consign them to dust and damp by way of preserving them. Such parts of the house as Nicholas knew best were rather bare and cheerless, but here there were wonderful things for the eye to feast on. First and foremost, there was a piece of framed tapestry That was evidently meant to be a fire screen. To Nicholas, it was a living, breathing story. He sat down on a roll of Indian hangings glowing in wonderful colors beneath the layer of dust and took in all the details of the tapestry picture. A man, dressed in the hunting costume of some remote period, had just transfixed a stag with an arrow. It could not have been a difficult shot because the stag was only one or two paces away from him. In the thickly growing vegetation that the picture suggested it would not have been difficult to creep up to a feeding stag, and the two spotted dogs that were springing forward to join in the chase had evidently been trained to keep the heel till the arrow was discharged. That part of the picture was simple, if interesting, but did the huntsman see what Nicholas saw, that four galloping wolves were coming in his direction through the wood? There might be more than four of them hidden behind the trees, and in any case would the man and his dogs be able to cope with the four wolves if they made an attack? The man had only two arrows left in his quiver, and he might miss with one or both of them. All one knew about his skill in shooting was that he could hit a large stag at ridiculously short range. Nicholas sat for many golden minutes revolving the possibilities of the scene. He was inclined to think that there were more than four wolves and that the man and his dogs were in a tight corner. But there were other objects of delight and interest claiming his instant attention. There were quaint twisted candlesticks in the shape of snakes and a teapot fashioned like a china duck out of whose open beak the tea was supposed to come. How dull and shapeless the nursery teapot seemed in comparison. And there was a carved sandalwood box, packed tight with aromatic cotton wool. And between the layers of cotton wool were little brass figures, hump-necked bulls and peacocks and goblins, delightful to see and to handle. Less promising in appearance was a large square book with plain black covers. Nicholas peeped into it, and behold, it was full of colored pictures of birds. And such birds! In the garden and in the lanes when he went for a walk, Nicholas came across a few birds, of which the largest were an occasional magpie or wood pigeon. Here were herons and bustards, kites, toucans, tiger bitterns, brush turkeys, ibises, golden pheasants, a whole portrait gallery of undreamed-of creatures. And as he was admiring the coloring of the mandarin duck and assigning a life history to it, the voice of his aunt in shrill vociferation of his name came from the gooseberry garden without... She had grown suspicious at his long disappearance, and had leapt to the conclusion that he had climbed over the wall behind the sheltering screen of the lilac bushes. She was now engaged in energetic and rather hopeless search for him among the artichokes and raspberry canes. Nicholas! Nicholas! she screamed. You are to come out of this at once! It's no use trying to hide there! I can see you all the time! It was probably the first time for twenty years that anyone had smiled in that lumber room. Presently, the angry repetitions of Nicholas's name gave way to a shriek and a cry for somebody to come quickly. Nicholas shut the book, restored it carefully to its place in a corner, and shook some dust from a neighboring pile of newspaper over it. Then he crept from the room, locked the door, and replaced the key exactly where he had found it. His aunt was still calling his name when he sauntered into the front garden. "'Who's calling?' he asked. "'Me,' came the answer from the other side of the wall. "'Didn't you hear me? I've been looking for you in the gooseberry garden, and I've slipped into the rainwater tank.' "'Luckily there's no water in it, but the sides are slippery and I can't get out. "'Fetch the little ladder from under the cherry tree—' "'I was told I wasn't to go into the gooseberry garden,' said Nicholas promptly. "'I told you not to, and now I told you that you may,' came the voice from the rainwater tank, rather impatiently. "'Your voice doesn't sound like aunt's,' objected Nicholas. "'You may be the evil one, tempting me to be disobedient. "'Aunt often tells me that the evil one tempts me and that I am always yield. "'This time I am not going to yield.' "'Don't talk nonsense!' "'said the prisoner in the tank. "'Go and fetch the ladder. "'Will there be strawberry jam for tea?' "'asked Nicholas innocently. "'Certainly there will be,' said the aunt, "'privately resolving that Nicholas should have none of it. "'Now I know that you're the evil one and not aunt,' "'shouted Nicholas gleefully. "'When we asked aunt for strawberry jam yesterday, "'she said there wasn't any. "'I know there are four jars of it in the store cupboard "'because I looked, and of course you know it's there, "'but she doesn't because she said there wasn't any. "'Oh, devil, you have sold yourself.' There was an unusual sense of luxury in being able to talk to an aunt as though one was talking to the evil one, but Nicholas knew, with childish discernment, that such luxuries were not to be overindulged in. He walked noisily away, and it was a kitchen maid, in search of Parsley, who eventually rescued the aunt from the rainwater tank. Tea that evening was partaken of in a fearsome silence. The tide had been at its highest when the children had arrived at Yagro Cove, so there had been no sands to play on, a circumstance that the aunt had overlooked in the haste of organizing her punitive expedition. The tightness of Bobby's boots had had disastrous effect on his temper the whole of the afternoon, and altogether the children could not have been said to have enjoyed themselves. The aunt maintained the frozen muteness of one who has suffered undignified and unmerited detention in a rain-water tank for thirty-five minutes. As for Nicholas, he too was silent, in the absorption of one who has had much to think about, it was just possible, he considered, that the huntsman would escape with his hounds while the wolves feasted on the stricken stag. So, what did we learn from this week's show? Well, if you're going to talk behind your guests' backs at a dinner party, keep a keen eye out for gossipy talking cats. And, if you simply must catch your nephew in the act of doing something you shouldn't be doing, Watch out for empty rainwater basins. Truly, these are universally applicable lessons. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Stories of Your and Yours, and if you did, I'd love it if you spread the word. If you've got a story to submit to the show, or if you have a request for a short story, send it in to syypodcast at gmail.com, or hit me up via the aforementioned social media handles. This week's music was by Raphael Crux and Kevin McLeod of freepd.com. For a full list of music and sound effect credits, please visit syypodcast.libsyn.com slash blog. Next week, we'll be visiting a haunted house. I've mentioned before that I'm a fan of horror fiction, and this is one of the best haunted house stories I have ever read. Trust me, you won't want to miss this one. Until then, this has been episode 15 of Stories of Your and Yours. I've been Sean Ennis. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.